But I'm interested because David Tussle's new book is all about the 1970s. He goes right the way through. It is a brick of a book. And I wanted to dwell on your time in the 70s. You were at Oxford. Which college? Uh, New College. Ooh. Uh, In the early 1970s, and I'm always curious to see who was Oxford Union president, because my brother knows the daughter of Damien Green, who was president of the Oxford Union a few years. Now, I know Damien through um, some, uh, well, a guy I I played football with with at Oxford um, went to the same school in Reading as Damien Green. Big Reading fan, yeah. Yeah, he's a friend of a friend, and occasionally, uh, if I go to see various friends who are Reading fans before a game at the the Basic Stadium, Damien's often there as well, and uh, Mm. no, I I think I sat and watched an FA, no, I watched the England, I watched an England game in my friend's house with Damien and Philip Pullman. The, uh, the novel, because uh, my friend was still lives, was lived in Oxford at the time, and uh, he was in a, an Oxford novelists group with uh, Philip Pullman. So there was me, Philip Pullman, and um, Damien Green, the right honourable Damien Green MP, yes. in, the, in the same room watching an England match. That was... Uh, that was, a, that was an afternoon or the an stories evening. That, yeah, and what happens in Oxford stays in Oxford. I must read Northern Lights. I still haven't read it. Um, for um, allegorical I'm reasons. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. All right. Um, interestingly, two McDonough brothers were presidents of the union. Robert and Philip both became diplomats. Baron Moynihan was um, the president for a term. And in 1969, Giles Brandreth. Had, had he left by the time you were there? Yeah, he was a new college guy, I believe, but he had left. Yeah, um, Rick Stein oh. and Mel, Mel Smith were just leaving as well. The thing is, you know, I have to say, it's possible to, to spend an entire academic career at, at Oxford and have very little to do with Oxford, Univers- Oxford Union and their mm-hmm. presidents. I think that's really for the sort of ambitious, politically inclined people, the, the, the sort of normal people who uh, just turn up there from state schools and... You know, want to learn a little bit of a uh, little bit about English language and literature. Um, need not ever go near the Oxford Union. So um, very went, interesting. But um, you know, I, I'd like to say that I spent all the time that other people spent politicking uh, in libraries learning, but um, that, pro- that probably isn't true. Um, I think I like a lot of you know people who went to university. If you look back and think, I actually wish I'd spent more time actually studying and taking advantage of all the uh, the opportunities that were there. But uh, no, I had some good people um, uh, teach, teaching me. Um, John Bailey was, was teaching, taught me English literature. Um, you know, and his wife, Iris Murdoch, would occasionally be sort of sitting out on the, the staircase outside waiting for me to finish boring him senseless with my thoughts on John Donne. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, son Christopher, was my uh, English language tutor. So... Uh, had some great names um, involved there, and it was it was very hard uh, not to learn anything. Gosh, um, I, I sat for Oxford. I, I don't say this so much, but I realised it was a boarding school, and so I went to Edinburgh instead, which was a city. So, and I, I'm sure Oxford is great. Um, they're really widening the access to people who aren't from Eton, and uh, I'm sure there are more state school kids nowadays. In... Well, you see, you say that. I mean, in the seventies, I, I I think you know there, I, there was. It was mostly state schools at New College, as far as I could tell. You know, while my friends, I, I remember hearing some woman say who's going up to be a warden of a Cambridge college saying, "Oh, I want more people from Scotland and Blackpool to, to be there." Well, there were tons of Scots and people, people from Blackpool and Sunderland and Newcastle and Leeds, and you know, and all, you know, all human life is there. 
And we used to slightly look down on some of the public school educated guys because it's pretty obvious that they needed closed awards to to get in there, you know, whereas those of us who don't try to do it on brains alone, you know, we felt, you know, we were there on merit and they were there for other reasons. Well, you know, which ground in the 1980s had seven stands? Well, yeah, by the 1980s, when, when they'd finished building, well, Oxford United's banner ground, it was never, you've never seen such a collection of weird little constructions for, for so few seats. But um, I mean, Oxford United had such character as, as a ground. I mean, I, could, I never warmed to the team, and occasionally, you know, I'd occasionally go up there and, and watch a game if I wasn't doing anything else on a, on a Saturday afternoon, or if I wasn't going back, to, back home to watch Brighton. But... Um, no, they had, there was a, a main stand that, that just about made it to the halfway line. There was a sort of conventional ter- cover of a terrace behind the London Road and Goal. But in one corner, they had uh, a, a little stand that I think was for the staff that had been the old dressing rooms. And I think it was at an angle. And there was another one that was about 10 yards long. And then on the other side, when I first went there, I think, in the 70s, there was a, an old stand that looked like a bike shed very sort of low cover and then when Maxwell took over and they they were on their way up, up into the old first division they they built another two stands between that and the the away end so yeah, one two three four five yeah seven stands and you know none of them you, you know they all looked as if they belonged at a, a a sort of you know ninth level of the pyramid um uh, ground you know they only that main stand was was one that you would have thought you know belonged in the football league at all so and and the slope was weird it didn't just slope end to end to end but sort of side to side as well so the one corner flag you know was was much higher than the the one opposite and oh it was and it's not a question of just playing down the slope from you know towards the london road end but you know down the slope from one side to another it was it was just a weird place to watch football crazy uh, and I've got a picture up here, and I do encourage listeners to have a look at it. And um, maybe in the football library, we'll have a poster of various grounds. I think I'll just get Simon Inglis's book photocopied and stuck oh. alongside the grounds. You actually thank Simon Inglis and Phil oh. Shaw in your book Pulp Football, which is your first yeah. book. Brighten Up is your second, and yeah, Simon's book, which is a historical relic, because how many pre-Taylor oh, Report grounds yeah. are still there? Apart from it's, a wonderful book. it's a wonderful book. Uh, I've got the first and the last uh, editions, but even the last edition, you know, it, it's it's so well, so many of those grounds have have gone, and you know why? Obviously, the Taylor Report, and but I, just to take Oxford United, the new ground is such a disappointment. It's so featureless and and bland and characterless compared to the Manor Ground, and and you know that's. You know, Brandon Park to the to the Reebok or whatever it's called as the University of Bolton Stadium, isn't it? Oh, yeah, um, Roker yes. Park, Roker Park had such personality compared to the Stadium of Light, and it's a it's a sad thing. I mean, I'm I think the Amex is as good as any of the modern grounds because it's it's got a personality. It was fought for so hard by the fans, but you know there are still some people who rue the loss of the Goldstone and and know that you know in different circumstances that could have been made into a you know a great old school. Ground. But, you know, Highbury to the Emirates, uh, a lot's been lost. I think Whitehart Lane to, to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, that's an exception. I think that has taken football stadium to another level. Well, because um, it's a gridiron stadium, masquerading as a soccer stadium. 
they, what they have done there is that they've got one solid end of, of, of fans, you know, without a sort of break for some boxes in the middle. Oh, um, great. So, you know, that's, that's been thought about. Um, and, you know, the atmosphere there is, is, is great. I mean, you, you go from the, the den to the new den, even though it's not called the new den. And, you know, the, the, the Millwall home end is broken into two tiers. Um, you know, I think one thing about Vicarage Road, um, you know, that hasn't happened in, in three of the stands. You know, the, there's unbroken, you know, wall of, of fans. And I think, you know, I think it gains from that. Watford fans will get to sample. Uh, the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, uh, when it's actually the Nuno Derby this weekend, two o'clock Wolves Tottenham, and then Tottenham Wolves is two o'clock next Sunday. I'm just looking for when Brighton go to Spurs. Spurs go to Brighton in December. Uh, Brighton go to Spurs. Ooh, very late on April the the weekend of April 16, match week 33. So keep oh, that Spurs, free. Well, Spurs will be in Spurs will be in crisis again by then. That's good. <laughs> That's uh, Brian Lee. Uh, Brian Levy, Daniel Levy is a good example of a, a top chairman, although we don't know anything about him. Uh, do you still read all the newspapers? What is your daily ritual when it comes to reading sports journalism? Uh, the only two I actually get through the door are the local paper and the eye. The Argus, um, you mean? Yeah, the, the Brian Argus and the eye. Because the eye, if you want to read some, you know, everything, you know, have a look, look, look through the digest of things. I mean, I, 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 did, I got the independent... Um, when it was published as a paper, which I thought was the most underrated publication there were. I mean, I, you know, I worked mainly for the Indy after leaving the Times, and um, I, I really enjoyed work. It was a sort of slightly sort of low budget, you know, it's more of a sort of indie production in, in many ways. You know, it was like moving from, uh, you know, from CBS to Stiff Records or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So it was. Um, no, it was. Uh, I, I loved working for the indie because you know they they go for something more off the wall. Uh, if you had a slightly odd idea of uh, for a story, you know they they'd be up for it. And um, I don't. I think it, it suffered from distribution problems. You couldn't get it everywhere in the country. I think if more people had seen the Independent, I think it would have had better, better sales. But I think it was let down. Um, you know, but from on high, I think the product was brilliant, uh, and it was. You know, I loved the. The columnists, you know, some of whom have, have left, some have gone, some have crossed over to the eye, some have gone to other other papers. That was, uh, and it was also closer to my own political views as well, I think, than, than the Times. And how hilarious that one of the guys who founded the Independent is now the Prime Minister's father-in-law. Hilarious. Well, you know, it's, it's weird, weird stuff happens, isn't it? Indeed. Um, the, the ADC, I've spoken to Jim White... Uh, and haven't spoken to Henry Winter, but they were two of the founding journalists. Henry Winter's job, he, he by his own admission, he wanted to be Geoffrey Green. He wanted to report on matches for the Times, and he's very, very good at what he does. Are there any underrated sports? I, I read Jim Lawton, I should say. He's probably the, oh, one of the Don what a, what a guy, yeah. And, 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 you know, like a lot of the two greats, you know, when you actually meet him, you know, he's, he's a... You would never know, you know, you never suspect his eminence. He's just a, a regular guy and he was just, you know, a wonderful company and uh, fount of stories, that, but not, you know, the, the sort of name dropper that, that a lot of people could be, but just somebody who'd tell you the stories if you wanted to hear them, which, of course, he always did. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he's not with us. Hugh McIlvanny is not with us. Oh. Brian Glanville uh, celebrates next month his 90th birthday. I've heard he's unwell. Um, 
fact that I haven't seen him at the ground means he can't be well. I mean, he he would get to games on a hospital bed. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy just just loved to be at games, you know, and I've seen him cycling to you know tying his, his chaining his bike up outside Loftus Road, and uh, you know, I've been been fortunate enough to be at his uh, to go to his Holland Park mansion and. Um, found my way through the piles of papers to actually uh, sit with the, the great man. Uh, this was before I was at the Times, actually. I think I, was, I did a feature on him for a Total Football magazine before, uh, which was, uh, which, I don't know, what, that, when did that fold? Uh, probably around, uh, probably folded around 2000, but... Um, you must send me this line. piece. Can you scan it through, or is it online? I, can, I don't know if it is. Um, I'll, I'll have to look. See if I've still got a copy. Uh, thank you, thank you very uh, much. Because I've got, um, I'm trying to prep a show for Glanville's 90th, which um, is just before. Um, it's in the middle of Sukkot. It's in the middle of the Jewish Tabernacle Festival, which is quite apt because Glanville, real name Goldberg, um, as well as being one of the the biggest football critics, is one of the most important Jews in Britain. As <laughs> as I will not be. But um, we've got Jewish New Year coming up. There are loads of Jewish fans down in Brighton, big Jewish community. Is there a fan base? Like, is there like a Jewish group? Because Watford Jews have just set up. There is a Jewish no, group. Actually, I, uh, I mean, I know that Tony Bloom's done an awful lot for local synagogues and, and local Jewish community. But um, I'm not aware of it, but it doesn't mean there isn't, there isn't such a thing. So, I, will, um, I will have a look. Uh, uh, in the meantime... Uh, but Glanville, is also, Glanville also has a fine voice. Because, you know, his son's an opera singer. Yes, uh, And Millwall fan. But uh, you haven't lived until you've been serenading with uh, the songs of Tom Lehrer by <laughs> Brian Glanville in a packed railway carriage on the way back from a, a playoff final in Cardiff. Oh, if only. I think um, if I, I'm in touch with Mark and I'm trying to sort something, but uh, if you can dig up some um, Samidstat audio I'll, of I'll, it. See if <laughs> if I, I should have had my dicks fun. It was John Brodkin who was then working for, uh, out in the field for the Guardian and uh, and me and uh, about fifty fans in, packed into this this coach and, and Granville burst into song. Memorable moment. Oh, so wow. were you going to ask if if, there, if there was any un- underrated football writers out yes, there? Yes, very good. <laughs> um, is, are there any reporters? Um, who haven't been hoovered up by the Athletic? Whom I should read? Who covers for the Argus? Uh, Brian Owen. Oh, he's, he's very he's good. A, he's a good, good local guy. Yeah, good. Uh, speaks decent Spanish and, uh, and stuff. So very good on the on the Latin connections. Um, well, but you know, there are still very good people out there in the in the old dead trees business. I mean, I Ian Herbert, who's, who was a, um, a colleague of mine at the Indy. And it's now with the mail. I, I looked up at stuff he was doing for the Indian. I thought this this could be the next Paul Hayward. And I, I think he's got a he's he's got that extra little willingness to go the extra mile. I mean, I know when when the World Cup was in Brazil, you know, he he went alone into the favelas and, and did stories, you know, on, on on the football fandom in you know in the poorest parts of Rio. And uh, I think he's got um, a very uh, very novel turn of mind. And I think that I think. If he got the right job, you know, if somebody was looking for a, a chief chief sports writer and wanted somebody who'd do something, you know, go down the the undiscovered furrow, I think I think Ian Herbert would be the man. Good I think I'm definitely you... definitely a writer worth following. Thank you. Yes, I've read Ian, but not enough of him. Uh, you've you've had a byline in every daily and Sunday newspaper. Can I just ask the one that you haven't? 
do they sell it in newsagents in Liverpool? Um, no, it was the last. It's now I've now got the complete set. So oh. I did, um, it was the Mail on Sunday. It was, and and the thing is, I had been in them, but because they didn't give freelancers bylines, I was I had a I didn't have my own byline. So I believe somebody told me that in fact I think it was a Watford Loop report I'd gone in under my own byline. So. Um, I believe that. So I've been in in them all. I think there was one year I did the broadsheet slam. I did. Uh, I had a, a, a byline in Indie Indie on Sunday, Guardian Observer, Times Sunday Times, and both both Telegraphs. Um, so yeah, that was um, that was a, 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 a something a notch on the on the bedpost. So uh, yeah, but it's just. I mean, these days, you know, I'm working for I work for an agency and. Uh, they say, you know, can you do this much? And um, these are the papers that want the uh, want the stuff. So uh, it's good, but, but not being attached to a particular paper means I don't have to make up transfer rumours, uh, unlike some of my poor colleagues. Mm, yes, uh, I've just spotted Harry Kane um, getting a tour of Abu Dhabi for some reason. No, it's nonsense. Terrible. They're, oh, I mean, there was there was a story the other day that that went into great detail about the contract offer that a club had made to a player. And, you know, there were were people saying, oh, it must be true, it must be true. Look at all those details. And I was thinking, well, I can make up details. (laughs) If you're going to make up a story, you can make up the details because, no, you know, nobody's ever going to say, well, you know, yes, we signed it, but that particular contract detail was wrong, blah, blah, blah. And I happened to know that that club had not made even contact about that player and was not interested in that player at all. But, you know, somebody has sat down and made up this complete load of rubbish for money. Um, you know, fair mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, Everyone's for got a, a, a crust and some people can look at themselves in the mirror the next morning and some people can't. I Absolutely. Guess. Yep. There's, well, history history has its eyes on you. Uh, Pat Nevin's book begins with him being so irritated at being told to effectively do some clickbait that he went home and wrote his memoir, That's which is a Pat Nevin thing to do. Have you had Pat in the press box with you? There are a lot of ex-pros. I mean, some, some ex-pros are... <laughs> it's difficult, you know, you remember them when they were players and, you know, you remember that they were the people who never talked to you, they never stop in a mix zone and then suddenly, you know, they're on our side of the fence and they're, they're everyone's big mate and you think, yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, others who, were, you know, would, would always talk and were always human, you know, and they'll, they they join our ranks with our best wishes and uh, we're very happy to, to talk to them. I mean, um, yeah, uh, Nevin's, Nevin's one of the good guys. Uh, ben Murray, who's uh, who's you know crossed the crossed the line. He was he's always a guy who talked very uh, very witty guy, very intelligent, dry humour. I think mm-hmm. he'll do well. Um, Carlisle, yeah, isn't he? Uh, Cumbria. He's, he's, he's from Maryport, I believe, in right. Cumbria. Yeah, so he's uh, he's got that accent that you, when you first hear it, you think it's Geordie, but actually when you, then it, it's not. But um, yeah, I think that I think that part of the world um, breeds uh, slightly. Uh, different sort of people you know it's, it's it's out on a limb and people have their own opinions and their own independent thoughts and uh, yeah so it's uh, some interesting people come one from, to from watch that. um glenn murray didn't work at watford but of course did phenomenal no, it things didn't. It's not at all did it um oh. but uh, i think that it's it's weird i mean there are, there are places that that people uh, players of a certain style can play and play places where they can't i mean he's moved to bournemouth um i've heard a very interesting rumour about that but uh, it didn't make any sense because Bournemouth didn't play a style that suited Glenn Murray at all and he didn't do very well there and yet he he came back to Brighton where Mm. they had wingers bombing the ball in from him from both sides 
does he had at Palace. Yeah. Um, and it worked. And you thought, well, obviously, why did why did he go to Bournemouth? That didn't that that never looked likely to succeed. Um, possibly Watford was another one where it just wasn't going to happen. We will. Well, it was near Sky Sports Studios. Maybe that's why. But uh, we will wait for the memoir. There are certain players. I think Michael Richards will have a memoir in him. Um, a lot of black footballers. Andy Cole's had his memoir. Emil Heskey's had his memoir. And Pat Nevins is one of the best. It's it's Eamon Dunphy class. And before I return to pulp football, I just wanted to get some of the players you've most enjoyed watching in the last 50, 60 years. Um, well, my favourite ever player was Brian Horton. And he's you as a Watford um, fan won't like me naming a Luton captain. But of course he was a Brian We need Luton to that. do well. Uh, Tim, was it Tim Rich who helped Brian write his book? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Tim Rich, another of my favourite writers. Oh, I mean, if, if, I could, if I could write intros like Tim Rich, I'd be, I'd be very happy. I mean, he has... I don't know how, uh, and, and of course, Watford's very own Mike Walters. Of course, I mean, that yes. Mike, Mike Walters is, I, I've seen Mike at work concocting an intro, and, <laughs> and you know, you, you're in the presence of greatness there. I should say, um, Tim Rich, uh, whose Quality of Manners book on Bielsa is now in paperback, is working with a famous former Luton Town manager, who isn't Brian Horton, uh, on his memoirs. Jewish is the clue. But uh, no, uh, so Tim, Tim is, yeah, uh, uh, it was great having him as a colleague at... Uh, at the Indy for a time as well. So, um, yeah, uh, love his work. Um, and Mike uh, is, uh, Mike Walters is, is, of course, a legend. Um, other players, Marcel Desai uh, was a favourite player. And um, I, I, I remember getting sort of uh, almost awestruck when I had to, to interview him uh, at some some function after he'd, after he'd retired. Because, you know, Marcel Desai, for God's sake, you know, mm. he was just, uh, I just loved his performance for Milan against Barcelona in, in that... Uh, European Cup final, you know, basically a centre half playing in midfield, but just bossing the whole thing. Vieira, I think, was a, was a, was one of the best players ever seen. And trouble is, I can't wish him well as Crystal Palace manager. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how I want that to end because uh, he was just such a, a tremendous player and a, a tremendous leader for you know for a team I didn't particularly support. Uh, but you know, you just thought, you know, this guy is, is you know, an unbelievable presence and an unbelievable athlete. But I mean, I suppose, you know, as, a, as an appalling Sunday League footballer, you know, I like I was a centre half, and you always appreciate players who sit in front of the defence and make life easy for you. So mm. Desai, Vieira, you know, that's uh, Horton. That's that, I guess def- you know, I'm holding sure. midfield player is my yeah, the number four is my favourite type of player. Very interesting. Um, yeah. So I love those guys, you know, and, and love what they contribute. Not necessarily, you know, a glamour position, but often the engine of the team. And, and currently, Eve Bissouma of Brighton, who's playing that role for... He's up for against Brighton. the rhyming. <laughs> Bissouma and Loser should be playing on Saturday. Yeah. You've got a chapter in Pulp Football, all for one and one for all. The stat is that Steve Clark, when he became manager of West Brom, was the 18th former Chelsea player of the Premier League era to manage at league or international level. Di Matteo, mm. Hughes... Hullet, Viali, Zola, and of course, one Gus Poyet. Yeah, well, the Poyet was an absolute dream to have as the manager of your local club because if you were short of a story, you could go to a Gus Poyet press conference and you'd have, you'd have two or three by the time you came out. Because he wouldn't, you know, there were, he had such a, a breadth of experience and, he, and so many opinions about everything. I noticed a stat, I think it was actually one of the, an ex Chelsea goalkeeper had become a goalkeeping coach some. Time. And that sort of set a little spark off in me. So I, I thought, yeah, there's so many of these ex-Chelsea Benetti. players around managing. And I just yeah. totted them all up. And then I saw Dave 
Gus a call and said, Gus, can we sit down sometime and talk about all the, you know, the ex-Chelsea? And, oh, you know, he, uh, he could have spoken for hours, but it was very interesting. The story he told about how, you know, they all got together in the, the physio's room at Harlington and would would talk about, um, you know, it was like, you know, as I think I said in the book, it was a, a sort of modern echo of Casatari's Cafe at West Ham, where the, the West Ham players like, um, you know, Malcolm Allison used to meet after games and, and, and go through tactics and stuff and, you know, move salt cellars around, you know, as a sort of informal tactics board. Um, so, yeah, that, that was a great example of, you know, just a little idea that the, the independent were very happy to run with and uh, having the right contact to, to make the story sing a bit. And, uh, no, it, it, Gus Poy, I'd, I'd love to do his autobiography. I mean, I've uh, talked about books I've written. I've also ghosted a couple Gus I'd love to do. I'm not sure he, he thinks of me as a pretty good omen because I remember when he was Sunderland manager, I texted him and said, oh, looking forward to coming to see your team play at Southampton today. And I don't know if you remember that was a, that ended at 8-0 to Southampton. So uh, he walked into the press room afterwards and looked at me and said, I thought you were supposed to be bringing me good luck. <laughs> <laughs> not sure I promised that. Very good. Uh- <laughs> You've, you filed copy for the incredible game in 2012, which finished 7-5. Have you still got that match report seven, somewhere? 7-4. Seven, 7-4. Four, seven, four. Portsmouth 7-4. There was one in... Was it Arsenal? There was a, there was a Reading-Arsenal game that was 7-5. Yes. So you were at 7-4. That was a Carabao Cup uh, game. Okay. okay. So it was the 7-4 no, you I remember I was actually... Uh, a couple of writers and I, we went to see Lewis play. And we were we went into the clubhouse afterwards and... That game was on the the, the the Reading Arsenal game, and then we went back into Brighton and went to another pub, and it was in extra time still, but, and still going on, and, and the goals were, were flying. No, the, the the Portsmouth Reading game was the um, the highest scoring Premier League game, I think, at the time. Still, still possibly is, but it was an utterly insane afternoon. Um, you know that England defenders, you know, doing mad stuff. I mean, Sol Campbell's just sort of swinging a, a leg at a ball and deflecting it past David James and James rushing out out of his out of his penalty area failing to get the ball and I think I can't remember Steve Hunt or someone scoring from an impossible angle um, no just um, just a, an afternoon when everything went crazy but you know very interesting to talk to the manager afterwards I mean Harry Redknapp through gritted teeth had said what a great game it was and you know you thought I'm sure you, you're going to give your defenders hell in, on Monday morning. But Steve Coppel, you know, ashen-faced, as they say, after a, an experience like that, it was um, a very interesting you know, game to write. Normally you'd think, well, Portsmouth Reading, that'll get 350 words on Monday morning. But um, no, you got the centre spread, and you then feel that, you know, you have to do justice to a, to a game like that and find something, you know, moderately intelligent to say. I, I think... Um, Pretty happy with the way that one turned out. Pulp Football, an amazing anthology of real football stories you simply couldn't make up. Uh, Herman Hreiderson's Five Relegations, Jimmy Glass, David James and the Miami Dolphins, Frank Barson, ex-Watford and Man United. But I want to take you back to Easter 1989. So this was before or after the Hillsborough disaster, this Palace-Brighton game? Before then, because Easter weekend, I think Cup semi-finals were probably quite late in the day. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, regardless of when Easter was, Crystal Palace and Brighton, this is the match that contained not one, not three, but five. Five penalties, yes. And uh, Palace contrived to not score three of theirs. 
penalties and only scored one, and Brighton got one and scored one. But uh, no, uh, uh, an amazing afternoon. The away fans were in. Uh, I don't even know if it's it's occupied these days. It's the sort of top corner of Selhurst Park between the uh, the home end and the Arthur White stand. So um, next to the home fans, really, and which you know provoked quite a bit of name calling and. Most of the penalties happened at the, at the far end. Ian Wright opened the scoring with, with, I think, what he still says is one of his finest goals. An unbelievable left foot rocket from out on the on the wing. Just just shot past Brighton goalkeeper John Cleary. And then, you know, then the, the, the weirdness started. I'm mean, not sure many of the penalties would have been given even today. I think one of them was definitely a penalty. The others looked very, very odd to me. And I, I spoke to Ian Kirkishley, who who scored the Brighton penalty later when he was Charlton manager, and he said, oh, I think they were all penalties. And I'm thinking, well, Curbs, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I mean, one of them was definitely backing in. I think Dean Wilkins tripped Eddie McGoldrick. I think that was definitely a penalty. Uh, the Brighton penalty, I think, was a sympathy vote, since the referee thought he'd given so many to Palace that Brighton would do one. But oh, people were just shouting out, penalty, every time the ball went into the, into the, into the areas. You know, and Half the time it was, but I think the first, Palace penalty was scored by possibly Wright. Uh, I think Mark Bright hit one against the post, then one was saved. I think mean, John Pemberton hit the last one, and it's. Was last I seen in probably, orbit over Beckham. Yeah, possibly not even Beckham, and more, more like, you know, more like Maidstone. It was just, you know, as he ran up, you just thought, well, you know, where's this one going? It must have gone over the Holmesdale end. There wasn't a roof on it in, in those days, but it was still a pretty high terrace. It's just scooped in, scooped skyward. Uh, Selhurst Park, uh, Crystal Palace against Brighton on September 27th, Glanville Week. How wonderful. And Brighton host Palace, uh, what's that, match day 22 or whatever, uh, the beginning of January. Um, Someone's typed into Google, why do Palace and Brighton hate each other? Uh, And that's the big game in the 1970s. Were you at that game? The, the, well, there the were fighting. a number of games. I mean, it was Venables and, and Mullery, really. I mean, there, there hadn't been a rivalry before 1970, was it 1974, when Palace were relegated to the old third division. Um, and, you know, what people don't know is that, uh, as I said, before Crawley Town came into the league, there were, there's, there were no football clubs between Crystal Palace and, and Brighton. So in that direction, you know, there were obvious rivals. And then, of course, they started to be in the same division as one of those. People say that Venables and Mullery started the rivalry, but I remember when Peter Taylor, Clough's old mate, was in charge of Brighton. Brighton went to Selhurst early in the season. I think Palace had won their first four or five under Venables and Allison, um, And Brighton went there and got an unbelievably streaky 1-0 win. Um, you know, it was, it was the Alamo and, you know, Palace missing chances from under the crossbar. Um, and then... Later in the season, they were both sort of just outside the promotion race, and uh, Brighton pretty much ended Palace's promotion chance with a 2 0 win over Goldstone. Sammy Morgan scored both goals. So it was bubbling up, and then the following season, not only did they play each other twice in the league, but they were drawn together in the Cup, and it went to a third replay at Stamford Bridge, which is where, you know, the, 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 the saga really got underway with a twice taken penalty that was. It was. It was Order a retake because a Palace player had encroached or something. He thought it was a Brighton penalty. Was then saved, and Alan Murray was alleged to have thrown a pocket full of change at the, mm. 
the yes. Palace fans and said, oh, Crystal Palace, you're not worth that. Some people say it was a fiver. Some people say it was a you know, handful of coins. So uh, yeah, Mr. Time, legend and all that. So, um, But I think the, I think the legend, I think the, the rivalry was already underway. And then, you know, they followed them, followed each other up the divisions. It's been a, it's been a fun rivalry, really. I know the, the, almost the funniest thing that happened was when Brighton were in, in real trouble down in the, the fourth division and Palace were, were up in the championship. I think they put a, uh, an advert in the, in a paper advertising for new rivals because Brighton just weren't good enough. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> but, um, when Palace, uh, were in trouble, you know, Brighton donated and when Brighton were in trouble, Palace fans, donated and they still there's a there's a game every uh, every year between Palace and, and Brighton fans in uh, of, the, of, of a, um, a charity fund for um, for a Brighton fan who was killed in the, the World Trade Centre yes there um, is, which is yeah 20 years this year yeah and uh, you know the, 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 the charities that have benefited have been in Croydon as well as as well as in uh, mm. Sussex so uh, you know that's one of the things that um, you know it, have been going through their various um, bankruptcies and uh, administrations. You know, I don't think Brian would ever want to see them go out of business because you don't want not to have your rivals. I mean, you want to. There's no greater feeling than you know than winning at Selhurst Park. You know, with an anti-Anthony knockout worldly. And if if you were denied that chance, and I'm sure the Palace fans absolutely loved the monumental injustice of their last-minute win at the uh, the Amex last season. Yes. And to think that, you know, that you wouldn't have that, uh, it would be just, you know, so sad. And for for Watford not to have Luton, you know, would be would be terrible. And for for Fulham and QPR not to have each other to, you know, to, to fall back on. No, I think the rivalry is one of those great things in, 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 British, in British football that, you know, Americans just don't seem to have. I mean, the... For, for the New York Yankees, you know, the rivalry is with the Boston Red Sox, not the New York Mets, because of you know, historical, you know, divisional rivalries and things like that. And, you know, the way things are structured, this is like Liverpool's rivalry with Manchester United rather than Everton. You wouldn't like to think that that rivalry ever overshadowed the Merseyside rivalry or that Manchester United, Manchester City took second place to a sort of intercity rivalry or Manchester United Leeds. I think those local rivalries, you know, even the ones that seem weirdest to people, I think they're, they're the very stuff of, of British football. That, that felt like the game podcast. I didn't, I did, like Gab, I would just sit back and listen. Um, the, the only way to conclude that is to say that Ebony and Ivory live together in perfect harmony on the price <laughs> of football. Uh, Kevin Day, big Palace fan. Kevin Maguire, big Brighton yep. fan. Uh, I'm imagining you've had dealings with one or both of them in the past. Uh, yeah, certainly Kevin and I have. Um, yeah, I did a piece with Kevin for the Brighton, Brighton um, Hove Albion website. No, he's uh, he's um, and his, his contributions uh, unofficially on the Brighton fan sites uh, are very amusing as well. Things he can't say say out in public. Yes. So it's uh, it's um, and I believe um, Kevin Maguire didn't actually tell Kevin Day he was a Brighton fan right. until he agreed to do the podcast. So. Uh, no, that's great. I mean, they're, they're banter. I think uh, Kevin Day's idea of what life in Sussex is like is, is hilariously weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's a podcast that everyone who's interested in football should listen to. It's, uh, it's brilliant. Absolutely never miss that. 
Quite right. And um, I won't miss that as um, because Palace and Watford have the Zaha Harry the Hornet rivalry, which is absolute nonsense. Um, But yes, I will think of Kevin Maguire because Brighton play Watford live on Sky Sports tomorrow as this goes out. Nick Schapanek has been here to talk about Brighton Up from 2017 and Pulp Football. Uh, Two wonderful books. Am I allowed to ask if, apart from Gus Poyer's memoir, you are working on a book at the moment? No, there's a book I want to do, but I can't persuade the manager um, involved oh, yes. to, to do it. Um, so, uh, because I think he says all his stories have been told, but also I think he could he's capable of writing himself, this particular manager I've in mind. I got a bit of reflected glory from doing the words for Dickie Pelham's um, Telegraph Award-winning illustrated book, Her Life Behind the Lens. Um, so uh, that was the last actual book I, I worked on, but... Um, I was in in all the um, in all the promotional material. I was credited as co-author, but uh, the book itself, I just get an acknowledgement. But I'm happy with that. It was uh, it was a very interesting thing to do, um, you know, to to do the the life story and the career story of a photographer because uh, <clears throat> photographers, you know, are very uh, very different um, parts of the media for us us uh, writers. And um, very very interesting to hear, you know, the the, the Photographers are the same games that we are at, but have very, very different experiences and uh, get much wetter, it must be said. Two words, Mark Aspland. Oh, Aspers, yeah. He's the best. Yeah. Great, great character. Yeah. Um, David Ashdown of The Independent, Splashy, as he, as he was known. Uh, Unbelievable character. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Uh, there, there was, there was um, we did a story about Croydon Athletic, um, you know, when they, they were in trouble. And um, he went down to, to take the photograph for the story I was writing. And um, he said, oh, no, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet. The moment isn't right. And then, I don't know, he sensed that there was a, there was a picture coming. There was a, it was just a group picture of a few of the, the, the people behind the club, you know, the various, um, you know, uh, washers and uh, kit men and um, secretaries and everything. And, and then suddenly he put his, 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 uh, his camera to his, to his eye and took the picture. He said, yeah, yeah, that's the one. And I was thinking, what is he, what is he waiting for? What did he think? And um, when I saw the picture in the Independent on Sunday, he just waited for one man and his dog to appear in the, in the mm-hmm. corner of the picture. And it was just, you just, this little dog down in the corner of the picture and just absolutely made it. And he just knew that something was coming and that was, yeah, that instinct that uh, is the difference between, you know, a, a snapper and a, a real photographer. Oh, that's genius. Um, the two books, Pulp Football and Brighton Up, are in the Football Library. I imagine you want Brian Horton on your Football Library card. That means you can oh, access yeah. all the books fit to print. Um, and I, I better let you go because you might have an email from someone who wants to employ you as a freelance, fingers crossed, for Brighton <laughs> against Watford on Saturday. Um, um, oh, I've, still, I've got an Amex season ticket, so if I'm not working, then I'll be sitting in my own seat. Hey. Um and uh, yeah, but that uh, that's not something I've been able to do very very much. Obviously, you know, in the last uh, few years, because even the games where fans fans were, I was actually working. So, uh, but uh, yeah, with a bit of luck, I'll be sitting in that seat a few a few times when there is when there's no clash with uh, with work. And who knows which winger will play in which position and whether Lewis Dunk will go up front. That's just part of the fun of Graham Potter's Brighton and Hove Thanks so much, Nick. Just like a library. Just like a library.